This is a Vault Studios production. For anything you say, I'm Eric Flack. As we wrap up this first season of the show, we wanted to spend some time talking to two experienced investigative journalists about interrogations. So I'd like to welcome Brendan Keefe and Ann Schindler to the show. Brendan is chief investigative journalist at 11 Alive in Atlanta. What's up, Brendan? Hey, good to hear from you, Eric. Anne is executive producer of special projects at First Coast News in Jacksonville, Florida, and she specializes in investigative reporting. How are you doing today, Anne? I'm good, Eric. How are you? I'm good, 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 and I'm I'm excited to have this conversation with you guys. I wanted to start with you, Anne, because you actually did some reporting on one of uh, the cases in an episode of Anything You Say, the case of Ronnie Hyde, who is uh, currently on trial, um, awaiting trial for the decades-old unsolved murder of a teenager in Florida. Um, And you reported on that case, and you also reported on the Reed technique, which is kind of a training for interrogators and investigators as to how to question suspects. Tell me about that Reed technique and what it taught you about this process. I think what it taught me primarily was that there is a technique. I I guess I thought it was a little bit more loose than that. Um, But this was something that's been used to teach police officers from the 50s, really. And and the great irony is that it's named for a guy whose landmark confession that, that kind of popularized the method of interrogation ended up to be a false confession. And the fellow that was convicted ended up suing and getting this huge wrongful conviction compensation claim. Um, that is the problem with the Reed technique, is that it, it tends to produce false confessions. Um, and it's because the goal is to produce a confession. The lawyer that I spoke to um, in the story that I did on the Reed technique says, you know, the problem with it is you're not going for the truth. You should be going for the truth. And sometimes what you have is people confessing to the facts of the case that don't match, right? So they make a confession that is uh, plausible, except it doesn't actually match the facts of the case. And we saw a case of that here, um, a really landmark case of Brent, Brenton Butler, who was 15 years old and arrested for a crime um, and confessed to it, murdering a woman from Georgia. And uh, in the end, he ended up being exonerated and getting an apology from the sheriff and the state attorney's office. But he succumbed. And I think that that's the, the thing that people really don't understand about confessions is just how frequent false confessions can be. So, and if this read technique is at its core based on a technique that produced a false confession, it's not being taught or um, instructed to officers anymore, is it? Well, so the, the technique has, it, it still has a lot of tentacles, I will say, in law enforcement. And you can see them in the the interrogations that you guys have done on your podcast. You know, you see this sort of very close contact, uh, this, you know, getting very intimate with the person, confrontational moments, you know, challenging them anytime they proclaim their innocence, basically saying, that's that, that's not the case. We know that you did this. We have the evidence. Um, and presenting a scenario, a very, which very often doesn't have correct facts, you know, they're making things up, but they'll say, well, for instance, we, we found your DNA or, you know, your friend already told us that you did this. We know, you know, it's just up to you to confirm it, but we already know these facts. And so they will affirmatively lie and they will tell you things that, you know, will make you think that maybe your co-conspirator or your friend has confessed um, and tends to make it 
likelier that someone eventually will just get worn down. I think exhaustion is the number one reason very often that people do falsely confess. They just think that they can get out of there. They think that maybe they'll get a lawyer later and clear it up. They just want to go home. And so usually it is a combination of, of fear and exhaustion that eventually takes over. And the read technique capitalizes on that. It makes it very difficult for you to say no because they won't allow you to say no. It, it's just constantly thrown back at you. And um, so, yeah, it's a, it, it is still very much the techniques of the read technique are still in play, uh, very much. And that was one of my biggest takeaways from being a part of this project is the lack of transparency and flat-out lying on the part of the investigators in some of these cases we covered. Brendan, I didn't know before this podcast that interrogators, investigators, detectives, they can actually make stuff up when questioning a suspect, either to get them into an interrogation room or to get a confession out of them eventually. Um, and it, it just feels funny to me. Uh, you have a long history of reporting and investigative reporting on, on police tactics. When did you know about this, and, and what was your reaction when you first kind of learned of this? Well, I mean, look, we all watch television and Law and & Order, and, you know, there was a joke for years that if you were arrested by the precinct in NYPD Blue, you always confessed, and if you were arrested by the precinct from Law & Order, you always went to trial. You know, the two different plot lines. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, the, the interrogation is obviously the, the easiest way to get someone to admit they committed a crime, and then you hopefully get a guilty plea, and you save the taxpayers a bunch of money. Um, and you also get to close the case. But the problem is that, you know, you can, as an investigator, as a police officer, lie to a suspect in order to compel them to give you a confession. Now, the problem with this is that, um, you know, in investigative reporting, we have a very strong ethical guideline. We don't lie uh, in order to get to the truth. We are sort of members of the Church of Truth. So for, like, people out there listening, like, and I know you know this example, if I tell my boss I want to take a hidden camera into a car dealership to expose a bad car dealership, and I just want to just tell, they're like, why are you here? And I'm like, oh, I'm interested in buying a car. If I'm not actually interested in buying a car, our bosses won't let us do that. That's absolutely right. We don't commit a crime to expose a crime in investigative reporting, but we also try not to use deception because our ultimate goal is exposing the truth. And what good would we be if we were actually essentially, you know, committing falsehoods in order to expose falsehoods? So you're 100% correct. Now, you know, part of our tradecraft is we also don't always volunteer everything we're doing when we're undercover. If someone asks me what I do for a living, the ethical guideline is I have to tell them the truth. But I generally answer a question with a question. So someone says, what do you do for a living if I'm undercover? And I say, well, what don't I do? Well, because I'm my own photographer and editor, <laughs> so that's my answer, you know. And if they probe further, then, you know, there's more questions. You know, it's an old politician trick to answer a question with a question. But that really gets to the core of the issue when you're sitting in an interrogation room, or as they like to call an inter interview room, but it really is an interrogation room, is that you're standing or sitting rather across from a professional interrogator, and you are an amateur as a suspect, guilty or innocent, and you can be compelled to essentially admit to doing something you didn't do because they're using very sophisticated techniques and really a kind of uh, psychological warfare, what 
what uh, black ops people would call psyops. You know, it's psychological operations. You're, as Ann said, trying to wear people down. But the biggest one is this ability to lie. You know, I learned early in my career, I was also a reporter in Jacksonville some 25 years ago and covered many cases um, where, you know, we would find out that there was a confession. You'd get to trial and they'd play it and you'd hear them lying saying, well, we have your, you know, fingerprints at the scene or we have your DNA or you know, uh, your co-conspirator is testifying, is going to testify against you. All of that is allowed. You're, you're not allowed to coerce a confession under the Supreme Court rulings, but they determine that to be pressure like violence or, you know, a gun to your head, kind of the, the figurative um, uh, or literal gun to your head. Th- those are obviously banned. You can't coerce a confession like that, but you can lie to get it. You can say there's video of you walking in and this, you know, would compel an innocent person to try to talk their way out of it. Um, very few times, if you're being questioned by the police, does it result in your release without charges? If they're talking to you as a suspect and you've waived your Miranda rights, you are now testifying against yourself. You brought up Miranda rights, and that's another thing I want to talk about. Miranda rights, as we all know, is that scene out of the movie when the cop says, you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. In in the movies and in the TV shows, that comes, you know, at, you know, 57 minutes on the hour as it's about to wrap up um, and roll credits. Um, one of the things our experts pointed out in the course of this podcast is, you know, when they're bringing these suspects in for the interview, and we'll get to when is when is it an interview and when is it an interrogation, but a lot of times, you know, they can, they can kind of use a falsehood to kind of get somebody in an interview room. Hey, I'm investigating this totally, un, you know, related crime, and, and I just need to ask you a couple questions. And, and they'll put the suspect at ease, but then they'll kind of slide in their Miranda rights. They'll say, hey, this is just kind of, you know, um, procedure. I got to read you your Miranda rights. But the minute they do that, Anne, they read them their Miranda rights. Anything they say after that, even if they don't know what they're talking about specifically, can now be used against them. Um, where does that question sit in, in, in your reporting, and, and how have you seen uh, detectives and investigators use Miranda rights almost against the suspect, in a sense? Well, my favorite is when they say, look, we just got to get this out of the way. And they'll say, uh, you know, this, this is to protect you. You know, we want you to know your rights. We want to make sure we're not doing anything that violates your rights. So let me just go through a couple of things here. You've probably seen this on TV. And then they, you know, they kind of make it seem like it's, it's all being done for the person who's there for the questioning, to protect them, to make sure that there's no violation of their rights. When in fact, as you say, they're signing over their rights to remain silent, which is, you know, really a fundamental right and nothing to be signed away uh, cavalierly. You know, Brendan mentioned that when you're there, you know, it's not by accident. Um, And very often they will tell you, you know, it's just, we're just here for a couple of questions, just kind of want to clear a couple things up. But, you know, it moves then rather quickly, usually to the fact that you are the prime suspect and that's why you're there. Um, You know, they are, they're, smart about the way that they do these things. There was a case here recently with a longtime JS, uh, Jacksonville Sheriff's Office detective who's arrested, now charged with first-degree murder. 
And when, and they, you know, they know he knows the drill. They know that he knows what they're going to do, how they're going to ask him questions. And um, so instead of bringing him to the homicide unit, they took him to sex crimes. And, you know, just to throw him off, what could this be about? Maybe get him off his game a little bit. Um, Because most people are not pros at this. Most people are really, really unequipped to deal with a professional interrogation um, and are very likely usually to, to just sort of go along to get along, to see if they can just, you know, get out of there, answer a few questions, help them with their case, and then leave. And, and most, nine times out of 10, it doesn't end that way. You know, nobody is ever going to, no police are ever going to pull me into an interrogation room with, without an attorney, right? Um, Brendan, but people go into these interview interrogation rooms without attorneys all the time. Is that uh, just uh, maybe a lack of sophistication thing? Is that a, an investigators knowing the tricks because they don't want that attorney in the room? Where do you think that comes from? Well, remember, there's there's almost a level of diminished capacity when you find yourself in police custody. You know, I was wrongfully arrested in New York City as a reporter after a series of reports that I did for WCBS uh, that took away all the free parking for police officers in New York. So that I had 37,000 angry officers uh, and a couple decided to, you know, throw me in. Uh, lock up at the 115th precinct, uh, 115th precinct station house. Um, and, you know, I knew it was this sort of trumped up charge of disorderly conduct for standing in the middle of the road uh, during a live shot in a closed street. Uh, it was closed because there was a water main break that had frozen over. It was a silly story and it was a silly arrest. And of course, it was eventually tossed out. But when the police spokesperson person showed up and said, oh, get Mr. Keefe out of that cage and, and bring him up to the second deck, which is what they call the detective bureau. And they brought me into a room and they said, oh, take these handcuffs off Mr. Keefe. You know, he, he's a distinguished member of the press. He shouldn't be treated this way. And then slowly they worked into asking me questions. And it wasn't like, OK, now the interview begins. Um, and you know, in hindsight, I realized they were trying to get me to incriminate myself. Um, and, you know, I, it wasn't, you know, I'd prepared myself if I ever was wrongfully arrested. I was going to just say lawyer, 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 lawyer. Uh, that never happened because it was, there was this sort of dangling of this is all going to go away if you just cooperate with us. Um, and of course, it didn't go away. It eventually had to be thrown out by a judge. Um, and it was a trumped up you know, charge. It was just a, you know, to intimidate me after a series of stories they didn't like. Um, so, you know, it happened to me even with, you know, decades of reporting experience and knowing better. Uh, so just imagine if you don't have the education or the experience, if you're in that same situation. And there's a sort of confusion of Miranda. We get complaints all the time. People will say, well, they questioned me before they Mirandized me, so that's not admissible. Um, that's not really the case. It really comes down to when they're going to formally arrest you. It's after that point that you have to be Mirandized. Anything you say before that point can also be used against you uh, before they've read you your rights. And, and then even police have, are entitled to something called Garrity rights, which a lot of people don't understand. But if, you, if you're being investigated by your own police department administratively for an internal affairs investigation— uh, because they're your employer and you're a cop, you have to answer their questions. And the remedy for that was a case called Garrity. And so they're called Garrity rights, basically saying, 
we're going to question you. You have to tell us because we're your employer as the police department, but this can't be used against you in a court of law. If it then goes to a criminal investigation, they then will read your Miranda rights. And I've seen that happen to police officers who were later charged. That almost sounds like the police have rights in these investigations that you and I don't have. Well, yeah, here in Georgia, they're allowed to address the grand jury. They're the only kind of suspects that are allowed to make a statement to the grand jury, even if they're not going to answer the grand jury's questions. They're entitled to be present in the grand jury room. And they're the only criminal defendants or suspects that are allowed that uh, that right. And do you think the people on the street know the amount of theater that goes into an interrogation, the people who are inside the room, outside the room? And how different is it from what we see on TV? <laughs> well, I think the one big difference is the amount of time that you spend in that room. And every time I get a public records request back and I start downloading the interrogation, it's like, you know, a 25-minute download. And it's because it contains hours and hours and hours where the defendant is just sitting in this room unattended, um, you know, in a cold room very often, a lot of times through the night, you know, because they've been arrested late at night. And it just is uh, alone time. And it's very powerful. They are initially, you know, kind of alert and awake, and then they just sort of fade out by the time somebody comes in and starts talking to them. You know, they've sometimes been there for, I mean, I've seen one as long as as eight hours where the person was in there. Occasionally they come in and say, do you need to use the restroom? Can I get you some water? Uh, and then back out. So the time the time is something you don't see on television is the amount of time that people are sitting in those rooms well and they might have even have taken your watch they might have taken your watch from you they might have taken your phone from you already as part of a you know standard pat down and if there's no clock on the wall your sense of time isn't even accurate yeah i never see anyone in an interrogation room flipping through their phones i mean i feel like they're almost always in there with nothing to look at nothing to do um, and nothing to you know, answer their questions. It really is a a strange, isolating experience, I think, to be in those rooms for so long. And pointed out that really what they're trying to do is show you a single exit door. There's a door to the interrogation room, and that is your ticket home. And they create a path where there's only one way out of that door. And the way out of that door is to give them what they want. And if the person's guilty, you know, hooray, they just got the guilty person to admit to the crime and they've cleared the case. But if they're innocent and that's what they've done to get home to their family or to get out of this situation because it was the only way out of the room, uh, then they may have confessed to a crime they didn't commit. There is a huge discussion and debate conversation going on in this country right now about social injustice and the way police interact with the community, uh, specifically uh, people of color. Um, Much of that in the defund the police movement addresses the interactions of patrol cops and street cops with communities um, that they work in. Do you get any sense, and Anne, I'll start with you, do you get any sense that that conversation could actually find its way to how comfortable are we with the way investigators interrogate suspects? Oh, for sure. I mean, it is evolving. I think 
you know, a few years ago, the other gold standard of a criminal case was eyewitness testimony. And we've learned, I think societally learned how flawed that testimony can be and how vulnerable eyewitnesses are to getting it wrong. So that has has really turned a corner, I think, that interrogations may well follow that path. The more that we know about how interrogations are conducted and the more that we know how flawed they can be, um, I don't, you know, Abu Ghraib is sort of a whole different realm of interrogations, but clearly there are methods and means that produce false confessions all the time. And sometimes it's a matter of degree, but when people are being, you know, deprived of their liberty and deprived of contact um, and are, you know, kept in a cold little room for hours on end, there are certain deprivations that wear on the human psyche. And that's troubling. You know, again, it's like, I go back to what the lawyer was saying that I, that I spoke to for this other story. It's, you know, if you're going for a confession, you might well get a confession, but that doesn't mean that you've gotten to the truth. It just means that somebody has succumbed, that somebody is vulnerable. And, you know, the sad part is that, of course, the most vulnerable people to this kind of pressure and are, are either juveniles under the influence of drugs or alcohol or maybe have a mental illness of some kind or perhaps an IQ that isn't, you know, to a, to a level. So the people that are most likely to be trapped by the system are already disenfranchised. And we had a recent episode of Anything You Say that focused on a teenager in Toledo, Ohio, that was under the influence of marijuana when he was arrested and brought into the interrogation room, and they just wore him down and and got a murder conviction confession that put two other people in jail as well as himself. Um, and now he has recanted his story, and, and there are questions about whether that confession was accurate or legitimate. Brendan, do you see any change to the tactics police use when it comes to interrogations? Yes, I do. And here, here's where it is. It's, it's what they call the CSI effect. Um, juries, especially in major criminal uh, trials, felony trials, they want to see uh, forensics. They want to see video. Almost everything's caught on some sort of video now. So they want to see video. They want to see fingerprints, DNA, um, you know, fiber evidence. They want to see everything they see on CSI. And and actually, some detectives are frustrated in that regard because, you know, not every case has that kind of evidence. You know, when if, if you've ever been burglarized, you know, everyone thinks that CSI is going to show up and start dusting the house for prints. No, a, a patrol officer shows up and takes a report. So when the serial burglar is caught, there's very little forensic evidence, and they rely on the interrogation. But for every other case, you know, they, they're going to want to see those forensics. So there's a change. But remember, they can get you in that interrogation room on false pretenses. They can say, your daughter has been injured in a crash, and we have her at the police department. And then she, they can say, she's in this room. Then they lead you in this room, and she's not there, and now they're interrogating you. Or they did it with Richard Jewell, infamously, here in Atlanta. The FBI said they wanted his help with a training video because he was a police enthusiast and a security guard, and they wanted him to sort of role play in a in a training video. Well, that wasn't the reason. It was to interrogate him about the Centennial Olympic Park bombing. Um, and so even though they can do all those things, there are limits, and this is important. They can't say, if you would just tell us you did this, we won't charge you. Courts have said that's 
you're lying about the person's rights at that point and about their rights at trial. And, and so by saying, if you admit to this, we won't charge you, that's generally going to get thrown out. Same thing as if they say um, that, uh, you know, um, th- there's all sorts of limits in terms of, you know, um, the sort of legal process. Uh, if they say, you know, we think she died in an accident, we agree, we know she died accidentally. And if you would just admit to us that, you know, your wife died accidentally and that you were involved with it, then you'll be fine. Those are the limits. They can't say things like that, but they can say they have your fingerprints, they have video, they have a witness, they, your co-conspirator, you know, is going to testify against you and all of that can be untrue and you can still have a confession that's admissible in court. And they can also minimize, you know, which is one of the read techniques that they teach officers. They can tell you, look, this, you know, I understand why you did this. I mean, I'm in the same boat. I've had that feeling before. I've felt like that about my girlfriend before, you know. And so they'll make, they'll normalize whatever has been done to the point that the person may think that it's a, the kind of offense that they could confess to and still go home, that that it maybe is just the kind of thing they have to, you know, own up to. Well, yeah, sure, this happens. Um, even with just some of the most horrific crimes, you'll see officers creating that kind of conversation with a defendant and saying, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's called rapport. I mean, it's, it's the detective can say, you know, I like little girls too. I mean, something that outrageous, um, you know, send their, their, their partner out of the room and say, hey, look, you know, we both know that, you know, they're asking for it or whatever. I mean, this is really offensive language, but they can create that rapport to then get the person to confide in them. You know, Mike Wallace's old trick as an interviewer was to say just between us, even though there were four cameras in the room, you know, it's there's a sense of creating this sort of safe space where you're free to expose your darkest secrets. And there's nobody watching this interrogation behind that metal or that uh, mirrored window right there in the uh, corner of the room, I promise. I tell you, the lack of transparency with some of these um, interrogations has really been um, one of my most jarring takeaways uh, from this uh, podcast and and this conversation. So, uh, Brendan and Anne, thank you very much for being here today. I appreciate it, guys. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Special thanks to our guest today, Brendan Keith at 11 Live in Atlanta and Anne Schindler at First Coast News in Jacksonville. Anything You Say is a Vault Studios production. We'd love to hear your thoughts about the podcast and interrogation tactics in general. You can share them in our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. You can learn more about our podcast and including Bardstown and The Officer's Wife, which was actually hosted by Brendan Keefe at vaultstudios.com. Vault Studios executive producers are Adam Ostro and Will Johnson. For Vault Studios, I'm Eric Flack. Vault Studios.